Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I am your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode two, where we will do a brief overview of slavery and the legislation involved. Just as a quick note before we get started, I did actually post a map last week to the Patreon feed, and I think moving forward I will probably use that as a medium for images. Uh, I certainly enjoy visuals. You know, when we start the war, I'm a big map guy. I think maps do a lot for us to understand uh, these things, so... Uh, I'm going to try to post on there as much as possible, so do make sure to check that out. I'll make sure to uh, indicate whether there's something interesting on there. So uh, without further ado or announcements, let's get into it. I think if you go to any Civil War site, you might see a panel or such that's going to explain to you uh, the cause of the war, and they're going to indicate that it was slavery. I think it's it's almost mandatory to have um, at no matter where you go, um, and rightfully so. Uh, so this is sort of a, a controversial topic, I suppose, uh, these days. Um, but I think we can all agree that uh, owning somebody is is bad, right? And you know, I'm not going to try to offend anyone here uh, when we're we're talking about these things. But I think it is important for a historical context to understand the attitudes of slave owning, particularly in the southern states, because it it is going to be important as we as we roll along here. We ended last week with westward expansion that took us all the way up until the 1850s. Uh, Pretty much that expansion was uh, the common theme of what we were talking about. Uh, But let's go ahead and dial back our time machine just a little bit so that we can fill in a few gaps. And first, I'd like us to take a look once again at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, uh, you know, where we talked about we got the Constitution from, right? And slaves had been part of the 13 colonies prior to the Revolution, uh, and it was not long before the Southern colonies realized the benefit of the labor for cash crops. In fact, we, we talk about the first slaves arriving in Virginia having been captured from the Portuguese and the Virginians uh, sort of welcomed uh, this this new form of labor because they needed all the help that they could get in harvesting tobacco, which was uh, the primary cash crop there at the time and way back in the 1600s. For the northern colonies, it would be a little bit different. Uh, the northern climates would see more of a focus on individual farming and not really as much of a need for forced labor. In fact, uh, Vermont actually becomes the first territory to abolish slavery in 1777, and it was a republic at the time, so not really uh, a state until 1791, that is, but they were the first to do so. Former slaves are going to serve on both sides during the Revolution. In fact, many are going to depart the continent with the British at the conclusion of the war, as sort of terms of their service would be uh, they could uh, be free at the end of it. So pretty, pretty sweet deal. And just as another tangent, I think sometimes we fail to realize that there were a lot of uh, Americans or loyalists who fought on the side of the British during the Revolution. And in fact, in many ways, the Revolution was the first American Civil War, and they're going to form large parts of, of the British armies that were fighting here. So, um, you know, that's something that not very many people realize, I think. But back to the convention. Already, 
this was a contentious topic between North and South, uh, that is slavery. A disagreement arose as to whether Congress would have the ability to ban the international slave trade. Five northern states had already banned the institution, but 30 of the 55 delegates that were present either owned slaves or, or certainly profited from their labors in some way. So it's not really as simple of a topic uh, as you might think. And here we have one of the first compromises and a long list of compromises that would continue to push America closer and closer to civil war. Now, Congress would have the ability to abolish the international slave trade, but they would not do so for 20 years. 1808 would be the year they could abolish it. And while international trade of slaves would in fact be abolished by 1808, the internal trade would continue in the South. In fact, as cotton grows to be the largest cash crop, uh, say in Virginia, where tobacco isn't doing as hot, uh, there would be a great internal trade moving, moving those individuals farther south. I think one can safely argue that this ending of the international trade would put more emphasis on the Fugitive Slave Acts as well that would be controversial and detested by the North uh, a little bit later. The Constitutional Convention would also arrive at the Three-Fifths Compromise. And we should all know the legislative branch is divided between the House of Representatives and the Senate. And while there are two senators for each state, the number in the House is determined by population. So the South argued that to combat the more densely populated northern states having a majority, slaves should count toward these population numbers. Without being free, the northern states obviously argued against this, and so we have another compromise here. Uh, slaves would be counted toward the population, but five slaves would count as three total people, hence the three-fifths compromise. This would keep the South politically relevant. And I think that we have a tough time with our modern minds understanding this one, uh, but it is important to note However, that the objectives of the delegates was to preserve the Union, uh, an objective shared by the federal forces in the Civil War. And setting up such a compromise would create a more cohesive and stronger young nation. So we just had a revolution. We don't want to have another one, so we need to come to some common ground. It is worth mentioning as well that while we are still under the Articles of Confederation, we see the further blueprint for how the country will determine a slave versus a free state. Uh, the Northwest Ordinance is an organic act or an act that establishes a territory and then specifies how it will be governed, which is created in 1787. The Northwest Territory would comprise of the future states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Slavery is going to be prohibited in this territory. So Congress would be sticking to the Mason-Dixon line to determine whether a state should be free or slave. And moving forward, the northern states would be free soil, while new southern states would be slaveholding. Louisiana Purchase of 1803 would see the addition of territory in the south. Louisiana would become a state in 1812, Mississippi in 1817, and Alabama in 1818. 19. Speaking of 1819, in that year we have James Talmadge Jr. proposing Missouri as the next state into the Union, but that admission would break the tie of 11 slave states and 11 free states. Talmadge, who while working as a member of the House, defended Andrew Jackson's actions in the First Seminole War we talked about last episode, 
proposed not only that Missouri be a free state, but also that any slave born in the state after admission be freed at the age of 25. This was fairly bold, and as you can imagine, it really didn't go over well in the South. The Talmadge Amendment would pass the House but fail in the Senate by five Northern senators who would vote against. And of course, all the Southern senators, they, they also voted against. The question now on the table was whether Missouri would in fact be a slave state. So we come up with the Missouri Compromise, which would see the creation of Maine out of the rib that is Massachusetts, and allowing the numbers to once again be even. The theme here is that we have a continued compromise. And it's really the opinion of your humble host that, you know, continually pushing something back and not really getting to the issue is, is not really going to solve anything. That sentiment is going to start to be shared by several people, including an individual in the form of William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison would start a militant anti-slavery newspaper in 1831 titled The Liberator, and he was only 25 years old when he did so. Garrison, a native of Massachusetts, would originally support the colonization movement that stood for the exporting of free blacks back to the African continent. But it was not long before Garrison discarded these views and focused on the creation of a newspaper to drive political change. The Liberator was a general newsletter on the abolitionist movement. The publication was not for profit, but rather it was a project for reform. Garrison would work long hours, including you know 12-hour days, with only one assistant to get the publication out on time. And of those who subscribed, free blacks made up 75%. Garrison, along with other abolitionists, were against compromise. In fact, there are two great quotes from Garrison. The first, I do not wish to think, speak, or write in moderation. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. Garrison also wrote that the success of any great moral enterprise does not depend on numbers. It was important, and it mattered little how many people subscribed, as long as there was a voice out there. And just as a quick side note for William Lloyd Garrison, it was definitely not an easy task to be the editor of The Liberator. In fact, uh, at one point, uh, he was almost lynched, in, and mind you, this is in Massachusetts, in Boston, uh, for for his views in the publication. Uh, and also, interesting enough, uh, almost like he lived in an in, in, uh, earlier time than he should have, oh, he had a great protest where he actually had a copy of the Constitution, and he there was a crowd that gathered around him, and he actually sets it on fire because it's... Um, this evil document that needs to be done away with. So um, pretty, pretty rock star there. The 1830s would see traction gaining in the abolitionist movement. Abolitionists, in this sense, are going to differ from uh, moderates who wished for gradual emancipation or uh, even other groups who simply wished to limit slavery. Uh, that's not what a garrison is, is seeking by writing The Liberator. Garrison was joined by Wendell Phillips and Frederick Douglass. Phillips would be a contributor to the Liberator, as well as a very skilled orator. After the war, he would actually share Garrison's belief in the expanding of women's rights as well, so very much in the reform category. Between Phillips and Douglass, however, I would probably put my money on the fact that 
probably heard of Douglas rather than the former. Frederick Douglass was born in 1818, the product of a white man and a black slave. He wrote an autobiography to dispute the fact that he was a slave with gifted oratory skills. English admirers sent money that was then used to purchase his own freedom at $600. Douglas would also use funds to begin his own publication, The North Star. Garrison would differ from Douglas due to a less radical approach. While The Liberator was an almost militant publication, as we mentioned, Douglas would argue for moral suasion and peaceful means to achieve their shared goals. During the war, Frederick Douglass would actually become a consultant to President Lincoln, and he would continue to fight for civil rights and women's rights as well for even years after. In 1846, we have a response to the abolitionists that came in the form of J.D.B. DeBow. James Dunwoody Brownson DeBow was an unsuccessful lawyer who had turned to journalism as a way to make money. Times change, am I right? Not, not probably doing that these days. Forget law, let's become a writer to make money. DeBose's commercial review of the South and Southwest would become a very popular text in a magazine. Already at this time, there would be a very strong voice of secession arguing that the South should not be dependent in terms of economics to the North. In this review, DeBose had some okay ideas. Railroads, he thought, would be key as well as expanding manufacturing and trade in the South. The magazine also defended slavery, though, and definitely was a contributor to the growing divide between North and South. The review would also pick up passages from the Bible that would advocate slavery. I think here we can connect this possibly to the Great Awakening that we talked about from the episode prior, this sort of drawing from the Bible as, as justification. DeBow would actually become the superintendent of the U.S. Census under Franklin Pierce, and during the war, he would become the Confederate chief agent for the sale and purchase of cotton, dying after the war in 1867. Last week, we mentioned the acquiring of new territory following the Mexican-American War, and as you can imagine, there were questions over the fate of these future states and whether they would, of course, be free or slave. The Wilmot Proviso of 1846 was a proposal sent to Congress by David Wilmot of Pennsylvania, which banned slavery in the new territories. Much like the Talmadge Amendment that we talked about earlier, it would pass the House but fail in the Senate. There was an attempt to actually attach the proviso to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which also failed. This is important because it shows an even further divide on the issue. Any new territory or states would be fought over. It would encourage more out-of-the-box ideas when it came to slavery versus free, such as the Austin Manifesto. Speaking of the Austin Manifesto, this is also going to come on the heels of the Mexican-American War. In 1854, Secretary of State William Macy is going to instruct the ambassadors to England, France, and Spain to meet in order to discuss the acquisition of Cuba. James Buchanan, future president, is among these men who will meet in Austin, Belgium, hence the name Austin Manifesto. The Manifesto, or Austin Circular, outlined the potential purchase of Cuba from Spain, and if that were to fail, then the taking of force 
the question that we probably have is why? You know, why why would we do that? Uh, we can safely assume that there are feelings stirred by manifest destiny that would be applicable here, sure. But also President Franklin Pierce, while not pro-slavery, would feel pressure to appease the South. The implication would be that Cuba would be a slave state. In terms of significance, the North would view this as clearly the South forcing policy on the country. Remember how we talked about how they were remaining politically relevant. While certainly I would not want Cuba to have entered the Union as a slave state, I think it is interesting to ponder exactly how different maybe things could have turned out should there have been the addition of Cuba as a state. In 1850, we have yet another compromise. California, acquired from Mexico, and one of the subjects of the Wilmot Proviso, would be seeking formal statehood in this year. Senator Henry Clay would be a promoter of a new compromise that would allow California to enter as a free state. Henry Clay, a native Virginian, is known as the Great Compromiser. He has entered our story before actually being involved in the Missouri Compromise of 1820. He ran unsuccessfully for president three times, but did have a fairly illustrious political career. Four times he served as a senator in Kentucky, and three terms in the House with each of those terms serving also as the Speaker of the House. He would be Secretary of State under John Quincy Adams in 1825 as well. In addition to California statehood, Texas would be reduced in size, as well as the slave trade would be ended in the District of Columbia. In return for the free soil of California, there would be strengthening of the fugitive slave law. Federal agents would be ordered to assist in the capture of fugitive slaves. In addition, a citizen who aids a fugitive slave could face a $2,000 fine, as well as potentially six months in jail. Northerners would be split between reluctant compliance and rejection. I want to digress in order to talk briefly about William Walker. William Walker was a mercenary and a filibuster who would also seek alternative means to add new slave territory to the United States. It's important to note in this particular context that a filibuster actually refers to a U.S. citizen who would instigate insurrection, uh, mostly in Latin American countries. As a response to the Compromise of 1850, William Walker would lead a small force to the city of La Paz in Baja, California, and proclaim the Sonora Republic. American support, though, was minimal, and pressure from Mexican forces would force him to withdraw in 1854. That same year, he would head to Nicaragua at the behest of a revolutionary faction. You know, some good old mercenary work there. Remarkably, he would actually become the president of Nicaragua in 1857 after a largely fraudulent election. He would flee to avoid capture by a coalition of Central American armies who rightly so, were pretty, pretty upset that Walker would reinstate slavery and move to make English the official language of the country. He would actually attempt to return to Central America in 1860, but would be captured by a British naval vessel and then turned over to the Honduran authorities. And that's where his interesting tale would end in September of 1860 after his execution. In 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe will write Uncle Tom's Cabin. This influential piece of literature would bring light to the horrors of slavery to northern white readers. 
The main character, Tom, displays Christ-like imagery and being whipped to death while not divulging the locations of runaway slaves. So pretty light reading. Also, sorry for the spoiler. 300,000 copies were actually sold in the United States, and even more would be sent overseas. Harriet Beecher Stowe would draw inspiration from abolitionist writing as well as personal experience, having lived across the river from Kentucky in Cincinnati, Ohio. While controversy will surround the novel in future for the depictions of slaves as well as the use of racial slurs, it is undeniable in the significance in continuing to move the needle on the northern sentiment towards slavery. It also soured the North on the new pieces to the Fugitive Slave Law after the Compromise of 1850. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 would see another territorial issue. This one isn't a trick question. It is actually involving the future states of Kansas and Nebraska. To understand this, we will need to take a look at somebody who will jump back into our story a little bit later, and the story of the future 16th president of the United States fairly soon. Stephen A. Douglas was born in Vermont, but would settle in Illinois at the age of 20. At 5 feet 4 inches tall, he was nicknamed the Little Giant, which spoke more toward his effectiveness as a speaker. Douglas would be elected to the Senate in 1846 in Illinois, and a railroad connection to potential states Kansas and Nebraska would turn a profit for Chicago and Douglas alike. So, in that year, he would propose that the territories decide on the slavery issue through popular sovereignty. That is to say, they would decide on their own. This is reminiscent of our older arguments between power lying in the state or federal government. President Pierce would sign the Organic Act into law after passing in the House and the Senate. There would be several ramifications to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, but we will take a look at those next week mostly. I would like to take a step back from our timeline just for a brief moment. We talked a lot today about dates and numbers and this side versus that side. Of course, the slave states versus the free states and the fact that we had to have compromises. We talked about all that today, but I think there is a question about, you know, why? Why are people in the South so very much ready to seemingly go to war over slavery. So I do want to take a look at the potential motivations for slavery in the South, so hopefully it will make a little bit more sense. It might surprise you to know that by 1860, there was actually only a small percentage of Southerners who actually owned slaves. Of the 15 total states that allowed slavery, only 26% owned slaves per the 1860 census. Those who owned 30 or more slaves as could be expected on, say, a traditional large southern plantation, were only 7%. This is why census is important. So for those of you who may not have filled out their paperwork in the most recent uh, census here, uh, you should probably go back and do that. This raises the question why exactly we could get to the point of secession if there were so few slaveholders, and so few who own large numbers so as to profit off of what we call king cotton. There would be a potential for Southerners who did not own slaves to own them in the future should they move into new territory. So so if there's more open territory in, say, the western part of the state and, you know, you're, you're moving there as a Southerner, you could look around at these large plantations that you see around you and say, wow, you know, I could build something just like this. If 
uh, I had the opportunity to own slaves and plant cotton. Racism is also embraced by the South, which made slavery seem like part of civilized society. So that sort of justifies it as well in that sense. Local farmers and craftsmen would also depend on large plantation owners for work and even loans. Therefore, even if they owned little to no slaves, they certainly benefited from the system. Sort of like when we talk about ancient Rome, sort of a a patronage system. From these, we can understand why maybe the South would be motivated to eventually go to war. To close today, I would like to point out that life in the North is usually highlighted as far superior than that in the South for Blacks. While, of course, the alternative to being a slave is, yes, far superior, I would like to mention that it was not always sunshine and roses in the Northern states. Free though they were, only four states allowed Blacks to vote in the North. They could not serve on state militias or juries. Several northern states had black laws which made it either difficult or impossible for free blacks to settle there as well. So despite being free states and fighting clearly for the morally correct, the north was not without its flaws. Certainly we see that with some of these folks who were having these ideas like, hey, let's relocate all these former slaves somewhere else or um, you know, some, some other ideas like that. So it's not always just cut and dry north versus south sort of morally correct versus corrupt in that sense it's there's a little bit sprinkled all over the place both north and south that should just about do it for today we made it back through the history of the 1850s and put a little bit more things into context next week we will charge even further into 1861 and by the end of it we're going to set up nicely for the actual start of the war If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Once again, feedback is appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. In the description, there should actually be a link to the Patreon and Venmo. Your support is greatly appreciated. And I would like to thank you all for listening and have a great week.